about a year ago, I think, I, was, I, was, uh, I heard about this um, Sanka set that was taking place and Broccolini, you know that construction company, they were hosting it and they were like kind of inviting people involved in the West Island to take part and uh, I'm neither a real estate uh, mogul or a community uh, uh, leader uh, nor a politician, but I just went anyways and, uh, <laughs> and thought I'd jump in. And so here I am in this crowd of people because what they were doing, they were presenting the, the new uh, train that's coming in and trying to get people excited and obviously spur business and connections around that stuff. So I thought, hey, we're in the West Island. Let's see how the train's going to affect us or not. So I think I was like the only pastor in the room. Uh, this warehouse, and they were presenting uh, the train and just talking to people. And I was definitely out of my element, but I'm always up for awkward small talk. And, uh, so, and so the question, obviously, when you're in an environment like that is like, okay, how do I act? Do I act like me? Do I act like somebody like me but better? Do I, do I, try, and, do I try and sound like you know, the business guy or the politician? You've been in those environments, right? Maybe it's a brand new job and you walk in and you're like, how can I be me today and not feel like I've got to be somebody else? Uh, or maybe, you know, when you were dating someone or you're dating someone and you meet their family and you want to be yourself, but you also want to kind of fit in to the environment. So that happens sometimes, right? And the question what, that you ask in this situation is, how do I act? How do I respond and talk to people? Or even a better question is, how do I be me in this situation that feels foreign to me, right? How do I be me in this situation that feels foreign to me? And so that's a little bit like what it feels like at times to be a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus, Christians, have been changed, you know, fundamentally from the inside out, And they start to begin to change outside in their decisions or actions, behaviors. And at times, the world around the Christ followers still stays the same, or it varies from culture to culture, worldview to worldview, uh, nation to nation. But you can see how there can be a tension in a Christ follower's life when Jesus begins to change them and they start to sense a new identity, but they're living in a culture that maybe doesn't reflect that. You guys tracking with me and what that, feel, what that means? And um, so we're going to start a, a, a series today in a letter in the New Testament called First Peter. And First Peter writes to a group of Christians who were feeling like that, except on steroids, all right? They, they were feeling uh, not just awkwardness, but hostility and um, distance. The, the tension that they were feeling was m- way more complicated than my thought of how do I have awkward small talk. Um, it affected their life, it affected their work, it affected their family and their friends, and you're going to see why. And so for the next um, little while, we're going to be exploring this letter called First Peter. And uh, we're going to start by reading uh, just the first two verses to jump into this. And so if you got your Bibles, turn to First Peter chapter 1. And as we often do when we walk through um, a series in a biblical book, we love to just like from week to week make sure that by the end of the series, we've read it all publicly together, all right? So we'll we'll always be reading uh, a portion of it. So let's start these first couple of verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let's just pray. Father, um, it's in this atmosphere of worship and community. Um, we posture our hearts to hear your voice, to hear you through your word. Um, go way beyond my capacity, God, I pray. Uh, and may I learn and grow and be convicted in the process as well. Um, so we just we long to hear from you, and we long for you to intersect our hearts and our lives so we can, we can know you better but also live uh, in a way today and tomorrow and onwards um, that reflects your convictions in our hearts. So we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Peter is writing this letter. For some of you who are unfamiliar, probably many of you do know who Peter was. He was a a disciple of Jesus. He was considered an apostle, so one who saw Jesus, uh, worked with Jesus, heard Jesus. And then as an apostle, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, he ended up sharing the message of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the story of Jesus to people around him. You know, Paul gets a lot of attention in the Bible because Paul wrote like a ton of books. And uh, Peter has First Peter and Second Peter. Although many believe that when, uh, as Mark wrote his gospel, Peter was the main source, influence, uh, connection to Mark as, as an additional eyewitness. So Peter, you know, he's definitely one of those disciples, apostles in the early church that had incredible amount of influence and impact as the church started and as the church grew. He was the first one to stand up and preach the gospel to those listening in Acts chapter 2, and thousands come to faith. And uh, he is the one who initially is, is reaching uh, the Jewish population, but God convicts him and, and helps him understand that those outside of the Jewish world are all loved by God. You know, and, and so Peter, is, is, his story is amazing. He's had ups and downs. He's had tragedies, times when he's denied Christ and come back and served him with great strength. And so here's this guy, Peter, who is now a leader in the church, and he's writing to this group of Christians. And, you know, the, the important thing is to understand, like, who are these people that Peter's addressing? And Peter's writing to these Christians in a way that I think tells us a bit of their context. Because if you read some of Paul's letters... There's these kind of opening remarks. Hi, I'm an apostle. Grace to you and peace in Jesus Christ. And often continues. And so you read some of Paul's introductions and you, some of you just want to skip by it. And some preachers, you just want to pull your hair out because they go word by word by word in just like hi, hello, the apostle, right? But, but, but here, here's the deal. Um, Paul's audience is varied, but his intros were very similar. Here we have this introduction to Peter's letter that is, has so much meat to it that it's worthy of our time to just pause here for a moment today. So, so that's, that's going to kind of be clear as we do that. Peter's actually here, when you think about you know, their audience and who they are, we're going to come to understand them. But here's what Peter wants to do. He wants to equip these Christ followers to be themselves or who God is shaping them to be in the culture they live. That's really the heart of Peter's letter. As you read through this letter, and I hope you read it on your own, you'd have kind of this lens and and ask the question, how is Peter equipping them to be who they are in the context of their culture? And the question is, like we asked earlier, how can I be me in this place? How can I be a Christ follower in this place? Sometimes you go even deeper and say, who is me? How do I define me? Who is me as a Christ follower? How has God shaped me? And it's a key question for any Christ follower because it's always a question of identity and purpose. 
When you ask that question, how can I be me in this place? You're asking a question of identity and a question of purpose. And that's how Peter starts his letter. He starts focusing on identity. And he talks about these two kinds of identities in these first couple of verses. Cultural identity and spiritual identity. And all of us have cultural identity. If you live in the city, in in Montreal, or in the surrounding regions, we all have a feel, right? I mean, when if somebody comes and listens to like the news in Montreal, they might feel like, what are they talking about? Why are they fighting about this? What's going on? But when you listen to CJD, you're like, I get it. That guy's crazy. This guy's corrupt. Uh, What's happening here, right? You you understand the the ethos of the city. We all have a cultural identity. You know, when someone says Poutine in Montreal and Quebec, we get it right away, right? Now it's passing on to other provinces and they're loving it. But like 20, 15, 20 years ago, they're like, what the heck is Poutine, right? We get it. We have a cultural identity here. Well, Peter's readers have a cultural identity. And he actually lists the provinces they live in. These five provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The region of the time was called Asia Minor, but today it's modern Turkey. And we actually... Um, you know, no people in Turkey and no believers in Turkey and what it, uh, from their experiences, what it means to live there. He's writing to them in the first century. And so this letter will go to at least five different groups of Christians, maybe more, because that's only the people he listed there. And so the church is present in these little pockets all over Asia Minor or what we know as Turkey today, just at the beginning. But he uses a word to describe these people when he writes to them. He calls them exiles. He calls them, he uses this word. And and, and it, it begs the question, like, what was life for them? Because exile is a negative word. No one says, I'll sign up to be an exile, right? Nobody says, yes, send me far away by force, right? But, but Peter's using this word to, des- to describe the people he's writing to because that's what they feel like. So to be exiled somewhere, it means that you've been put somewhere outside of your control, right? It's not because you got a great new job or because you retired with comfort. Like, okay, I'm going to move and kind of have a nice life there. Oh, this is awesome. I got this great new job. That's not what an exile is. An exile is when you're forced to move somewhere, and often it's because of war or famine or unemployment or, or a political regime. And Peter addresses these people as exiles. They have been, in some sense, forced or scattered there. Or that's how they feel because they're marginalized. And sometimes we want to say off the bat, oh, they're marginalized because they're Christians. We're going to get to that in the letter. But they're also marginalized socially. Before they even come to Christ, before some of them ever... Um, began to follow Jesus, they were socially marginalized people. It's very likely that his readers already had come from a lower class of people in that society with unequal opportunity for work. The people that are reading this letter were often frowned upon in culture, marginalized in culture, segregated, discriminated against, disregarded. In fact, Peter will use a word later in the letter and he calls them foreigners. To be a foreigner is like you're out of place, right? Have you ever been in a, like a place or a city and you're like, I just don't, this is weird here, right? Uh, four or five years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Thailand. And I remember uh, I, I got into the hotel really late. It was 2.30 in the morning on a Saturday night. And the plane arrived and I, I was late. And I, I was determined to connect with a church in Bangkok. So I got these directions 
previously with the people I wanted to meet. I've never been to this city before in my life. I've never been to, to that part of the world in my life. And I wake up at 6.30 or 7 to try and find this church, walking down the street, getting on the trail, the rail. Uh, you know, some things look modern. Then I'm in like the middle of this really busy street and I don't know any, I can't read any signs except tattoo, you know, or whatever. I can kind of catch those things. And, and I'm like, I have no idea where I am. I, like, I'm feeling like, am I going to find this place? They gave me an address and something, and I think I got off the right train stop. And then finally, these people start driving. I see them, and they look kind of Canadian, and they stop in front of me. They're like, are you David? And I'm like, thank you. And I was so happy because, and, and they, you know, they, they looked familiar, right? Like kind of the, the, how they were dressed or their, their, their face or how they were talking to me. And I'm like, okay, I know them. And I've, we, were all, we obviously talked uh, online before, so they connected us. And all of a sudden, I felt more at home. Because to be a foreigner means to feel like you're out of place. And if you're a foreigner with no connections or a foreigner that um, has hostility against you, you even feel more out of place. In fact, the Greek word for foreigner means alien. And, and Peter will actually use this word, or we can even translate it from the original. And you know what alien means? It means to have no legal protection. To have no legal protection in the society or the culture that you live in. I met this, um, this uh, global uh, mission leader. Such a resilient guy. He has such a, I mean, he has such a tough spine in a sense where, not literally, but like, He's been through so many difficult situations. And he told me of a time he was in a restricted area of the world. And this church was meeting, and they were given freedom by the government to meet. And so he was part of this, this, this gathering in this restricted area of the world. I won't tell you where it is um, in case it's on the podcast or something or his name. But he's, So he's there, and uh, the police had given them freedom to meet, but then the police kind of sabotaged it and came in. And they began arresting some of the Christians there. And this is not like in the last decade. This is not just like 30 or 40 or 100 years ago or longer. And they go up to him and they ask him who he is. They find out. They take him and they take his passport. And they put him in a hotel room for three days. Not prison, thankfully. They put him in a hotel and they kept his passport. So here he is in this restricted part of the world with no passport. No legal protection. (laughs) I mean, he's like... I don't know if I'm going to get out of this room. They can do anything they want to me because I don't even have my papers on me. That's, you, you, when you put these pieces, these pictures together of an exile, of a foreigner, of an alien, no legal protection, you start to get the picture of the kind of people that are receiving this letter that we're going to read through over the next several weeks. A picture of their cultural identity. They are marginalized people. But there was more to them than this. They have a spiritual identity. They don't just have a cultural identity. They don't just have the labels that culture gives them, that the government gives them, that the the other pieces of society put on them. They have a spiritual identity. And Peter uses a phrase in verse 1 to begin to unpack their spiritual identity. And he says, to God's elect. So he, he, that's the word he uses, to God's elect. In fact, he uses it just before he even says exile. That phrase, God's elect, to these people is an interrupting word. It interrupts 
like their thought of who they are and what they understand themselves to be and what culture tells them to be and what they're feeling in their culture as exiles, disenfranchised and marginalized. It, it inter, it's an interrupting word right into their cultural identity. And as even though they were exiles, when Peter begins to say God's elect, all of a sudden he kind of breaks through their experience, their cultural experience, and begins to say, okay, remember, you guys are invited. You guys are welcomed. You guys are at home here. You guys belong. You guys are loved. So the unchosen began to feel chosen. The unchosen by society began to understand their chosenness, if I can use that word, in God. And that's what Peter begins to say. As he unpacks this in this short introduction, he says, he then goes on after he calls them God's elect and helps us understand their cultural identity in themselves. And I love that because Peter is sympathetic with them. They know that he understands where they are and what they're about, but he interrupts their experience. And then he says, you've been chosen. And he uses that word. So their sense of isolation is interrupted. And he says, you've been chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here are these people now that culturally feel isolated. But Peter's reminding them, no, you might feel isolated here, but in the foreknowledge of God, your heavenly Father, you have been chosen and accepted. In other words, God wanted you. God loves you. God desired for you to be part of his family. He wanted you before you were born. He wanted you uh, even knowing your sin and your brokenness. And so this identity that they really have, not, just, not culturally but spiritually, is rooted in their heavenly father and their relationship with God. Of course, you know, it begs the question a little bit, what does that choosing mean? Did he only choose them and not other people? And as you read through the text, you can understand that, that um, the choosing is almost an idea that God knows all that's taking place. And he's orchestrated it also for them to come close to him and know him. The Bible says God desires everyone to be saved and, when, and, and, and rescued. And when Paul writes this in Ephesians, the word for the church that he uses over and over again, which is just the word you, it's always plural. God has chosen you. God has ordained you. In other words, God has chosen you. Now that you've come in, you, you need to understand God loves you so much. He's chosen you to be here. But those aren't the only words that, Paul, uh, that Peter uses to kind of describe their identity. He uses this other word. He says, you've been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And what he's saying there is God's Spirit did something so miraculous in you when you chose to follow Jesus that he began to change you and sanctify you. That word sanctify is, a, is kind of a word for transformation or regeneration or change in someone's life. And sometimes we think sanctification or that change only happens like long after someone follows Jesus. But the word sanctify here is also part of what God does immediately when someone chooses to follow Jesus. When someone responds to God's grace, he, he, he begins to regenerate their heart and open them up. And it's this turning point in someone's life. And so to be sanctified is someone's turning point in understanding and following Jesus because God's spirit made that possible. God showed them who he he was. And he called them into that. To be sanctified is to be called. So it describes this new relationship with God. But then he goes further and he says, you've been chosen by the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the spirit. And he says, you've been chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And sprinkled with his blood. 
Now, that might be like in our, in our area. Imagine you're telling someone about your faith and, uh, and you're inviting them in. Hey, why don't you explore Jesus? What's it about? Well, you're chosen to be obedient to Jesus. Imagine that's the first thing you tell someone about what it means to follow Jesus. You've been, you've been chosen. God desires you to come into a relationship with him and to obey Jesus. They're like, wow, obedience. That kind of feels a little bit rough. But here, here's the deal. As Peter writes this, he says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He, he couples the obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord with what Jesus does on the cross for us. In a sense that when we come to know Jesus and embrace what he's done on the cross for me and for you, that opens us up our heart to look to Jesus and say, I would follow you anywhere because you have died for me and made a way for me to be in God's family. And to be obedient to Jesus is simply these simplest words that I often say. The simplest way to say you're a Christian is to say Jesus is Lord. And Peter says you've been called to the lordship of Jesus And that's been made possible because of the cross, the sprinkling of Christ's blood on the cross for you. So now there's this new life under the obedience of Jesus. For them, though, they're probably thinking, I'd rather obey Jesus than uh, the cultural authorities around me. They're very hostile to me. (laughs) They've been marginalizing us. They've been unequal in our opportunity to find work. Jesus is much greater and better to live with and follow and obey. But the beauty, it's not, a, it's not a duty. It's out of the cross. So when you put this all together, I want us to think about this. Here's this cultural identity, these people who feel so disconnected and marginalized. And then Peter says, no, I'm interrupting this. So you must recognize your new identity. God's, you're part of God's family. The Father, check out what Peter does. He includes the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son. That just as Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That all three persons of the Trinity are involved in creating a new identity in people. That's part of the conversion. I'm excited to jump into what that looks like next week, but I want to just ask a couple of questions. Because here's the thing. We all have a cultural identity. And depending on where we are in our spiritual journey, we all have a spiritual identity. We have a cultural identity in our neighborhood, our, our workplace, our, our city, uh, our culture, and we have a spiritual identity. In other words, we live in a certain culture. We can't get around it. It's a time and place and kind of set of guidelines and, you know, both fun and quirky and weird and good and bad, but we just live in this climate, right? That's our cultural identity, and we can't really get around that. That's where we live, and, and we've been shaped by it. And so the culture around us tries to kind of put these labels on us and tell us who we are. And some parts of culture is like, yes, I love this part of culture. Some parts of culture, we just feel like we're swept in even without choosing. But we need to understand that we have this cultural identity. If Peter was writing to you and me today, let me ask you, what words would he use to describe your cultural identity? If you were the recipients of this letter, if, I was the, if we in Montreal, as the church, have a letter by the Apostle Peter... What, how would he describe our cultural identity? What words would he use? What comes to mind? What do you, I don't know. What would, what would he use? What do you think? Nobody's going to say anything. I just wanted that awkward pause. Um, what would he say? To God's elect. He'd probably still say that. Because that applies to everyone that's in Christ. 
But what words would he use? Would he use the word exile? Would you use the word exile to describe your life in Montreal? I, think, I wonder if he'd say, to God's elect, the entertained, the comfortable, the distracted. I, I want, what words would he use to describe our cultural identity? Sheeple. What? Sheeple? Sheeple? Sheeple. She, oh, okay. <laughs> I needed a visual to, to understand that. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, so, so maybe uh, you can use that word. <laughs> but, but whatever, think about it. And I think it's important for us to ask that question because we have to discern what's our cultural identity. And we need to understand it. But we also must know the difference between this, their cultural identity and our cultural identity. Here's what some people do. They read First Peter. They're like, oh man, I feel like an exile. I feel like, I feel like I'm isolated. I feel like... I'm persecuted in my faith. Uh, I feel like, you know, I really wish I could get more ahead in life, and I can't. And so I, you read these words, and you're like, yeah, that's, I feel exactly like these Christians in the first century. And maybe we have kind of this pretend like we have this connection to feel exactly like they felt in that time period. Maybe there's some similarity, but not fully. I would say that most Western Christians cannot claim the kind of marginalization that these people felt. So what do we do? Do we close the Bible and not read it? Do we say, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me, so let me go on to like a nice psalm that can cheer me up. Like, what, what, what do you do when you read a part of the scriptures that you say, this doesn't identify me? Or sometimes, in worse ways, we, we make it identify with us, or we make ourselves like, it's like I have, I have that experience. I remember my uncle telling me when he came from Italy, uh, he was on a 10 or 12 day trip across the ocean in the boat. He was telling me about this, this, this experience and how he was seasick and how it was often cold in certain parts of the boat and the food was horrible. And he, he just like, it was a horrible experience. He hated it. So imagine my uncle would have written me a letter from the 50s and I would read it, you know, and I, or I would read this letter, him describing his experience on the boat. And then, and I have like a cruise planned in about six months. And I, and I read the letter, I'm like, you know, Take a lot of, make sure you have pills in case you get seasick and take a lot, a lot of blankets because it can get really chilly at night. And, um, you know, I don't know. He just lists a whole bunch of things, gives me the raw idea of what's going on. And I take that and I try and apply it to the cruise ship I'm going to go on with stabilizers, 24-hour buffet, and, uh, and a hot tub on deck. Right? You, you just, it's like, no, that's not, I can't even pretend that that's my cultural identity. Now, everything he wrote is true. Everything he wrote is relevant. Everything he wrote has an application for me today. But I, I can't pretend to just swap stories. And I think that's something we need to understand when we're reading something like First Peter and some parts of the Bible. We need to read the part of the scripture because it's going to force us to, be, to have a better interpretation of the Bible. When we read it, we need to dig into it and understand where are they coming from? What's happening? How are they feeling? What is Peter saying to them? but not automatically just completely replicate our experience because that's not always possible. Sure, we've been um, you know, persecuted as Christians to some degree, but not like this, at least not in the West. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come, maybe some ways that that does happen. But when we read this and we start to understand the different dynamics and really be honest with it, we say, oh, 
teach, it'll teach us how to apply the scripture to our modern culture. And that will take thought and prayer and reflection, maybe conversation. So ask that question. What's, where's the tension? What's, what's your cultural identity? But then here's this other question. Where's the tension with our cultural identity and our spiritual identity? Because that's relevant. Because there is always going to be a tension between our cultural reality and our spiritual identity. They had it in that time period, and their cultural experience might be different than ours. But our spiritual identity, that we are in Christ, you know, through the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit, obedient to Jesus, that is also our spiritual identity. So where's the tension? This is what we've got to ask when we read a text like this. Where's the tension between our cultural identity and our spiritual identity? Because we have to understand that. There is going to be a tension to be part of God's family, uh, immersed in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will automatically lead us into situations and decisions and circumstances at work and at home and in the neighborhood and in the city and in culture to say, how do I be me in this situation? How do I, how do I react in this situation? How can I be who I am and who God has shaped me to be and live out the identity that he has created in me through Christ on the cross and his work in the spirit? How do I be me in this situation that doesn't feel like me or this culture? Because to be part of God's family means to be in the world, but not always of it. To be in the world, but not always of it. Now, it doesn't mean that culture is our enemy. There's lots of beauty in culture. There's lots of joy in culture. I mean, I see some of the places we go visit, you know, here in our city, some of the sculptures, the landscaping sculptures, the the arts festivals, the music festivals. Um, You know, there's beautiful things going on in our culture. When we see, you know, kids playing in the street, and just joyfully we see grace. and, and, And when we're downtown and see, you know, beautiful beauty erected, we're like, wow, that's awesome. We can, we can, take notice of, of, of beauty and grace and culture. We can honor art and business and technology. I'm fascinated with you know, image bearers around the world that don't all know Jesus, but that are expressing their, their, themselves. And I'm like, wow, God, you created the capacity for people to do this. I mean, there, there's parts of our culture where, where we can honor and, and, and uh, celebrate But Peter will challenge us as we read this letter how to discern living our true identity in the middle of our cultural reality because sometimes there's going to be a contrast. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up in a moment and uh, just as they're prepping, these are these kind of two questions. What is your cultural identity, your cultural reality? And then where's the tension between the culture we live in and the spiritual identity God is forming in us. It's so vital for us to understand. But here, here's how I want to close today. I love this kind of theme of interruption that takes place at the beginning of this, this, this chapter, you know? God's elect exiles in these places. Like, Peter interrupts what they were thinking or maybe feeling or how down they were feeling at the moment. And I, I love this image of interruption because here are these people feeling the way they feel. And, and it's going to be incredible to understand as we get into this next week that their faith, does it increase or decrease what they feel in their society? 
That'll be interesting to talk about. But the interruption that happens when, when, we, when, when God breaks into someone's life, imagine the interruption that they were feeling in a sense like how God's grace and joy and love and inclusion and welcome and how the message of the gospel interrupts their life where they're feeling so marginalized and separated and disconnected and, and, and frowned upon and segregated. And then the gospel comes into their life through people or conversations or communication or whatever, however it comes into their life, it interrupts their reality. It interrupts what they're feeling. And all of a sudden a window opens up and it's like, there's more than this. There's more than this. I don't, need to, like, I don't need to have everything around me identify who I am and, and, and what I feel and what the, what, the, what the trajectory of my life is going to be. All of a sudden, this message of grace, this message of joy, this message of inclusion comes in, and they felt something from God's love and God's uh, initiation and the work of the Spirit and, and the work of Jesus on the cross that they never experienced here. And it interrupted their lives. And here's the beauty. When someone responds to Jesus and his spirit breathes new life in them, that's when the interruption takes place. We welcome it. So we hear God's voice that says, I choose you. Imagine what they felt when they, when they really heard that theme for the first time or maybe in all its fullness, I choose you when nobody chose them. Imagine what they, they felt like when they heard God, God's affirmation. You have been elected for this. God is on your side. He's purposed for you to experience all you're experiencing as part of his family. Imagine the, the, the sense that they got of God's work. You've been sanctified for this. There's this purpose for you now. And what they felt is called to something greater, to follow Jesus. So as we, as we take some time this morning in worship, let that truth interrupt wherever you're, whatever you're going through this week. Whatever cultural reality is real for us here in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada... And, and, let's, and maybe there's something really difficult you're going through this week, or maybe there's just some questions and discernment phase you're going in. Let, allow God to interrupt that with this spiritual truth, with this invitation. Now, maybe some of you, you can just start, guys, as we, we move into this. Maybe some of you have, have been following Jesus for a long time, and you just need a reminder. You just need this reminder, like, this is my spiritual identity. Even though culture labels me this way, this is my spiritual identity. Because culture will try and put labels on you all the time. Maybe you just need to be reminded today. You need to set yourself firm, deeply in this truth of what God has done for you through the Spirit in the work of Jesus. And remind yourself, He has already interrupted your life and He wants you to know all of its goodness and truth. But maybe you've never turned to follow Jesus and you're longing, you're saying, I would love that. I would long to have something so lavish like that interrupt my life. And so my invitation to you is, would you embrace the Jesus Peter is referring to? Jesus' blood was already sprinkled for you. He already died on the cross for you. God has already chosen and desired that if, when you respond to Jesus, you will be part of his family. And he promises that when we respond, his spirit begins to work in us. That's for you. You just got to say yes to it. You need to make that turning point and say, Jesus, I call you Lord. I trust you. Will we stand as we worship this morning? And, um, and I'll give you time. You know, as we sing and worship, maybe you just want to reflect. Maybe you need to pray. Uh, maybe you need to, to really think about what the Lord is doing in your own heart. 
or maybe you just need to worship in gratitude to the Lord for who he is and what he's doing. Let's pray as we jump into worship. Father, um, Lord, you know, you know um, our cultural reality, our cultural identity. And um, we are not playing the victim card in our city. But we also recognize the contrast and the tension that often we feel in comparison to what you're doing in our lives and what you long to do in us. So, so God, we, we ask you for some here today that you would remind us of our true spiritual identity in Christ. Maybe in fresh ways you need to interrupt us and we just say, yes, do that. And we thank you that it's already you desire to do it. We just need to say yes. And so for some here today that are, have been reflecting, maybe wanting to step into a relationship with Christ, I, just, I pray that even in this moment, they would have the courage and the decisiveness to respond to the calling on their life, to say yes to Jesus, to call Jesus Lord, to trust him with all of their hearts. If that's you today, just tell Christ that you long to trust him with your life that you repent and want to turn around from the brokenness and baggage and sin that, is, that has been part of who you are and you long to embrace his love and his freedom and his blood shed on the cross for you. Say yes to him if that's your heart. God, we pray this in Christ's name.